Hi, this is Mark Brady. I'm the pastor at Anchor Faith Church in Valdosta, Georgia. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast today. We believe it will bless you and minister to you. I get ready to receive a word from God. Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. We've been on this tangent of the posture of our heart as the word is spoken, as the word is sown, as the word is ministered. We need to have a posture of heart that is both receptive and responsive. Receptive and responsive. We recognize that the effectiveness of God's word, the power of God's word to yield its results in my life is very much aligned with my ability to engage that word as it is spoken, the receptivity of my heart, and then apply or put into practice through responsiveness of the word what I'm hearing and what I'm being Uh, what's being sown into our lives. We recognize that this power is incredible because we see even in Jesus's ministry, the word made flesh, right? The word was literally present among them. But we know good and well that there were many that were not uh, yielding the results of Jesus being in their midst. You know, we sing songs and we say things like, you know, in the presence of the Lord. You know, his presence changes everything. Well, you know, uh, you know, the Bible even tells us where the spirit of the Lord is, what there is. But it's the, it's the freedom that we receive and respond to that really changes things. Because Jesus was present, as present as you can be in the flesh, living among them. And there were still people that remained unchanged. There were still people that remained unyielded to the word, unyielded to the ministry, unyielded even in the midst of manifestations and miracles and signs and wonders. And you think, man, if we saw all those things taking place, there'd be no way we would doubt the presence of God. There'd be no way we wouldn't yield ourselves to his plan. But yet that happened. That's exactly what occurred. Not only were they unyielding and just didn't jump in, they actually pushed back on, rejected, and eventually killed Jesus for that very ministry. They called him a, a, a heretic. They called him a lunatic. They called him a crazy person. They, they, they called him every name in the book and eventually killed him for rising up and saying that I'm bringing a kingdom to this earth. And so we recognize that there's got to be a posture of heart on our behalf as the word is ministered, as the word is spoken, that aligns myself, positions myself to receive the word and then be ready to respond. Last week, we looked at Exodus chapter 14, just for reference. And we saw that the word of the Lord came to Pharaoh multiple times. What was that word? Let my people go. God's people, uh, children of Israel, had been enslaved and in bondage by Pharaoh and his Egyptian nation for over 400 years of bondage. And their freedom came at the hand of a hardened heart. We recognize this, that when the word of God comes, many times it will reinforce the posture of my heart I'm already in. Many times the word, if I have a hardened heart, if I'm not teachable, if I'm uh, looking for someone to disprove what I already know or what I already believe, if I come in here with a position on something and I am now forced to align with what you already think is true, 
That's not a posture that's receptive. It will not be a posture that will be responsive. That's a hardened heart, a stubborn heart. And we find that that will typically become more hardened as the word is being ministered. But if you come in with a soft, moldable, pliable heart, teachable heart that says, man, I want to come in. I want to see something I've never seen. I want to learn something I haven't yet learned. I want to discover something that I haven't yet journeyed into. Not with a, 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 an openness or a mentality of you're just swallowing everything, but I'm open to what revelation I could receive today. A yieldedness to the Holy Spirit as the word is being ministered, that even if it confronts or challenges something I've already come to a conclusion on, I can keep my heart in a position that says, hmm, I might need to tweak that. I might need to discover more of this. I might need to journey into that. I might need to study that out. We know this of the Bereans uh, over in the book of Acts where uh, they were commended as a church that heard the word But it says that they went back and they studied out what was ministered and what was spoken to discover that it was true. Now, that's not hearing the word saying, you're going to have to show that to me. Again, that posture will only become more hardened if I'm up here having to disprove anything you've come to a conclusion on. But with a heart that's receptive, a heart that's open, a heart that's yielded to the Holy Spirit to say, show me, show me, help me discover, uh, reveal something to me that I haven't yet seen. Now I can take that back to Scripture and say, you know what, they're right. You know what, this, this Scripture does mean, this Scripture does say, this Scripture. And so it's the posture of our heart. We started with Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower. We recognize three out of four were unfruitful. It's interesting to note that two out of those four said received it with joy. That's interesting to me. Because even in the moment, even as it was being ministered, they had hands up, amen, and the pastor receiving it. Man, we're excited. But then it was either the distractions of life or the destructions of life. Because both will come. You'll get distracted by something that seems more attractive. Or something destructive, something troubling, something of trial and challenging nature will show up in your life and begin to move you off of the word of God. And both of those, neither of those, even though received it initially with joy, both were unfruitful. Both did not produce the fruit of the word of God. Even though we know the word of God is powerful. Even though we know the word of God is transformative by nature, even though we know that the word of God has the capacity to completely alter and change my life, if I do not become yielded to that in the posture of my heart, I won't see its yieldedness. I won't see its fruitfulness. I won't see its effectiveness. Now, we know that Pharaoh, as we saw last week, was addressed multiple times out of God's grace and out of God's mercy. Ten plagues showed up, and those plagues were actually God's mercy and grace giving Pharaoh another chance and another chance and another chance. Come on, I'm coming, I'm bringing the word to you. You want to follow, you want to receive another chance. We got the, the, the Nile River turned to blood. We've got plagues, we've got uh, frogs, we've got um, you know, gnats killing uh, wild animals. We, we, we've got, uh, you know, boils showing up all the way down to the last one that we know was the ultimate cost 
Every firstborn male child lost their life in these plagues. Opportunity after opportunity. God's grace and God's mercy moving on Pharaoh's behalf, giving you another chance to respond. And this is what we learned is repentance is not just merely saying, I'm sorry. In fact, you'll actually find after a few of those plagues, Pharaoh responded and said, all right, get them out of here, take them, let's get, you know, and then he would have a change of heart. Let me just go ahead and clarify something. If you have repented, ask God to forgive you of something. And again, it doesn't even have to be strictly sin. It could be a posture of heart. It could be a way of thinking. It could be something that God is dealing with you specifically about. Might not be a sin for another, but it becomes a sin for you when we don't respond to the word of God. And I have repented. God, forgive me. That was the wrong thinking. I'm going in this direction. And if you go back to it, let me just clarify, you have not repented. That's not repentance. Repentance is literally a change of thinking. A, a Repentance is literally a complete 180. Repentance is turning away from to never go back to again. You might have asked for forgiveness, but we haven't repented until we fully yield that thing and stay away from it on the course that God has called us to go to. I think I said this last week, but, you know, many Christians sin or disobey God. That's what sin is in its truest form. It's just disobedience to the word of God, to the word of God here or to a word that he's given you specifically. And many Christians sin or disobey God knowing he'll forgive me. And now we misappropriate God's mercy and God's grace. Now we are, are misaligning. And this is, this is probably the biggest key of all. Is when you override that grace and that mercy in your life time after time after time, you become desensitized to God's way. Let me clarify this for a moment. You become desensitized to God's way. We said this, I think, last week. It's all kind of running together, but at some point in the last couple of weeks, I've said this that repentance is not merely for the purpose of saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is really for the purpose of aligning my values with heaven. That's what repentance is in its truest form, is neglecting, walking away, abandoning what I thought so I can walk according to the way that he has. Repentance, if I'm changing my thinking, if I'm repenting of a certain way, repenting of a way of thinking, a way of doing, a way of of acknowledging, a way of responding, in any manner of life, any element of life, repentance is for the purpose of aligning my values with heaven. It's aligning with what God wants. Because if I'm out of alignment, then I can't bring what he wants to this earth. Why he says, seek first the kingdom of heaven. Because if I'll seek first his kingdom, everything else will be added. Everything else will be aligned to come find me rather than me having to find it. But it all comes first because I align my heart, align my values, align my desires, align my passions, align my interests with heaven. It's all about alignment. So honestly... 
you know, we, we haven't done this very well in the church. But repentance is more about what you're going into than what you're walking away from. But we've done the opposite. We've made repentance more about walking away from sin, putting down, and we have totally neglected what I'm trying to go toward. What I'm trying to take on. What I'm trying to become. These Israelites did this. They had so much effort in their minds and in their lives of getting away from Egypt that they forgot that they were moving toward a promised land. I'm going to tell you right now what is in front of you. If you got a clear picture of what's in front of you, you would never even tolerate the thought of going back to where you came from. But sometimes our rearview mirror is in better, sharper image than what is going through the windshield. Sometimes we still too clearly see slavery, too clearly see bondage, too clearly remember what we came out of. And we forget what God is trying to move us toward. He's trying to move you into a promised land. He's trying to move you toward his blessing. He's trying to move you toward. But we constantly keep this, I'm trying to put this down. I'm trying to overcome this. I'm trying to lay this down. I'm trying not to go back to that. Oh, it's tempting me. Oh, it's, it's, it's luring me back. Oh, it's, no, 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 no. If you kept your eyes on the goal, if you kept your eyes on what is ahead of you, you would never consider going back to Egypt. And I know we read this story every time, and it's like, oh, my gosh, these crazy fools. I mean, you've been in bondage for over 400 years. Why would you want to go back to slavery? Why would you want to go back to taskmasters? Why would you want to go back to them beating you and forcing you? Why would you want to go back to that? But this is, the, this is the issue of Christianity. It's been going on ever since the time that the children of Israel came out of Egypt. God was able to get Egypt uh, was able to get them out of Egypt, but couldn't get Egypt out of them. See, repentance, see, deliverance will get you out of something. But repentance will get something out of you. This is why repentance is so key. We're talking about the posture of the heart. I can't receive anything that God wants because I'm postured still. I've got a greater emphasis and a greater effort on what is behind me than what's in front of me. So they were delivered, but not free. They were delivered physically from the bondage, geographically removed even. Not only that, God even took the extra step of hardening Pharaoh's heart one more time. Ten plagues wasn't enough. And we saw last week in Exodus 14, they got up the next morning and said, what did we just do? We just let all those Israelites go. They were working for us. They're building our cities. They're doing our bidding for us. Why did we do that? Wait, what? They're stuck at the Red Sea? That's our moment. Let's go get them. Let's go get them. And actually, Exodus, I'll just read it for you because I don't think I gave it to the guys in the back, but Exodus chapter 14, verse 8 says, The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. In verse 4 of Exodus 14, this is what God says. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will chase after them. 
and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. That's God speaking to Moses, saying, they're going to come back after you, but just know I'm not done with them yet. See, God, when God finishes something, he finishes it. He doesn't just finish it halfway. Everyone's seen the movie where we thought we killed the guy, leave him laying over on the side, go about four or five scenes later, and the guy shows back up. David does not watch that movie. David took Goliath's own sword, said, we ain't playing games. I embedded a rock into his forehead, but I'm going to make sure that there's no more life. Took Goliath's sword and cut off Goliath's head, removed it from him, and said, we're going to make sure. David said, we ain't playing that game. We're going to make sure this is a done deal. And God is saying, we're not even going to leave Egypt alive without the Israelites. I'm going to make sure, and it was twofold. Number one, Egypt met their destruction. Because you don't mess with God's people without messing with God. I said, you don't mess with God's people. He will come and fight on your behalf. He will show up. I think I said this last week too, that God's anger is aimed at whatever interferes with what he loves. You don't want to get on the wrath side of God. You don't want to get on the side that is interfering. I mean, Jesus even said, if you cause one of my children to sin, you might as well just take a millstone, strangle yourself around the neck and throw yourself in the sea. He ain't messing around. You don't mess with my people. You don't mess with my loved ones. I know it's not the side of God that we like, we'd like to talk about in church, especially on a Sunday morning. That might be more Wednesday midweek type of stuff, but I just gave it to you on a Sunday morning. You don't mess with God's people. So first, he says, Egypt's going to meet their destruction, Pharaoh and all his men. Secondly, my children, my people, are going to watch them drown in the same river, the same sea that parted for them. Think about that now. Think about if the children of Israel made it into the wilderness, eventually into the promised land, wondering if that Egyptian nation is going to come find them one day. And now they don't have to be concerned with that because they literally watch Pharaoh and all his men drown right in front of their very eyes. It's kind of, kind of neat because in um, yeah Exodus 15, you know, verse 1 through about, what is that, 20, 21, they sing an entire song, an entire praise and worship song about the victory that they just Saul took place. They worshiped the Lord and they praised him because they saw their enemy drown right before them. That's incredible. That's incredible. But now we're going to see a transfer beginning with Exodus 15. Pharaoh and the Egyptians are done. The hardening of the heart for Pharaoh is done. He never responded favorably. Ultimately, he met his demise. Now we've got the children of Israel. And now we're going to find that they're going to have the same opportunity to either harden or soften their heart 
toward God to move them toward their purpose and to move them toward the promise of God. Now, again, Exodus 15, 1 through 21, first 21 verses, singing and worshiping and praising God for this great miracle that they just saw take place in front of them. But look at uh, Exodus 15, uh, verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. Verse 24. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? They what? They grumbled. One translation says they complained to Moses. Complaining is the language of doubt and fear. Complaining is the language of doubt and fear. I heard someone say this the other day, and it it just stopped me right in my tracks. We know that God, you know, the word of God tells us that he inhabits the praises of his people, right? If God inhabits the praises of his people, I wonder who inhabits the complaints of his people. I mean, I just took the whole month of January and we journeyed through our words and the power of our words and the power of yielding our mouth either to the king or to the enemy. I can yield my mouth and I can speak in line with what God says. Again, confession isn't just getting God to do what I want. It's aligning myself with what he wants to do. And I'm only repeating and only agreeing with and only speaking what he has already spoken. But complaining is the language of doubt and fear becomes evident what we are fearful of, and it becomes evident where doubt is still resident in our lives and in our hearts by our mouths and what we complain about. And this is the thing about complaining. Complaining fosters a heart of unbelief. Complaining fosters, it only reinforces the doubt and the fear that you already have. And so immediately, I'm talking on the back end, verse 21, they're worshiping and praising. Verse 23, they're grumbling and complaining. And you know it happens that fast for you. You know we get in here and we sing anything is possible and see a victory and great are you, Lord. And it's the breath in our lungs and we get to the car. Where do you want to eat? Well, where do you want to eat? Well, where do you want to eat? Isn't that amazing that just trying to find a place to eat can move your heart over to? It's, it's, it's that quick, guys. It's that quick. It happens fast. It happens fast. Two verses went from praise and worship. We barely get to the car. We barely get home. We barely, once again, having to what? Challenge and address. And and, and this is the thing, is, is God will show up repeatedly like this. He'll move 
on. I mean, in, in, in these moments, again, out of God's grace and mercy, verse 23, the people grumbled and complained. Verse 25, he cried out to the Lord Moses, and the Lord showed him a tree, threw it in the waters. Verse 26, there he made for them a statute and regulation, and he tested them, and he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you, which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. He's making promises of comfort, making promises of moving on their behalf, making promises of victory, making promises of healing their bodies. God's response, even to their grumbling and and to their complaining, is still moving and doing signs and wonders on their behalf. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. We solved that one. I'm just going to give you a few of these. We're not going to take all day because you you know the journey that these Israelites in this wilderness go on. You know, we know the end of the story. They don't even make it in. They eventually talk themselves out of the very thing that God is trying to talk them into. He's already spoken thousands of generations before. It's dangerous for us to think that God is still working on the promises that he's already given to us years and generations before. No, he's finished it. It's your job to walk in it, fight the battles to overcome it, and take that territory back for the kingdom of God and see his provision at your hand. See his provision in your life. See his blessing show up. See his promises fulfilled. God is not working on anything in your life. Just go ahead and make that clear. He finished it. Done deal. Nailed it to the cross. Jesus went down there, took back the keys to death, hell, and the grave. He whipped him and stripped him, actually made a mockery of him. This is a done deal to God. He's sitting down on a throne. Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father on the throne, and they ain't getting up. Now, it's our job to walk in and perpetuate everything that God has already made available to you and I. Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. I don't know about you, but if I ended up in the wilderness of Sin, I'm going that through that thing as fast as possible. I'm not camping there. On the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. So now they're taking their grumbling up to another level. You can take your praise and worship up to another level. You can take your grumbling and complaining up to another level. See, if we don't deal with grumbling and complaining in its smallest form, it will grow into such a a, a massive problem for us, such a challenging issue for us that now they actually begin to question and challenge the nature and character of God. This could have been nipped in the bud at the Red Sea. I mean, literally, they're seeing the bubbles float up. 
They're seeing the wheels and the chariot, uh, uh, chariots, and, and, and they're seeing dead bodies rise to the surface, worshiping and praising God, turn around, and two verses later, grumbling and complaining about the next thing. And now in chapter 16, they're saying, ah, we just, he should have just left us to die in Egypt. At one point, they even asked, why did God bring us out here? To leave us for dead? Then they questioned the character and nature of Moses. Why did you bring us out here? Some deliverer you are. Challenging and questioning the nature and character of God goes completely against who God created you to be. So rather than trusting and relying on the plan of God, we're now moved to the place where we challenge and we question. And we do the same thing. Why did he even bring me to this? Why did he even ask me to start this business? Why did he want me to raise this family? I thought I was just following God. You know that trial and tribulation will show up in your life because you follow God's word? You know that'll take place. But he still says what? Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So we see that now they've moved to challenging and questioning God. Why did, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full? It's amazing how attractive slavery gets when you abandon and neglect praise and worship. Isn't that amazing? When you were in slavery, all you thought about was all the horrible things about it. Now he sets you free, and now you think about all the good things. Well, at least I had this, and at least I had, at least I had friends. At least I had a good job. At least I had this. At least I had that. You know, I, I don't know if, if, I don't know if you could really be in a faith test and a faith battle in your life without the past looking more attractive than the future. I mean, that, that's one way to identify, am I really stepping out on what God's called me to do? If you haven't had the desire to go back to what you came from or say, you know what, the way I had it was better than having to deal with all this mess, you might be still operating in your own ability. But when you start operating in what God has called you to do and you start following after the plan and purpose that he has for your life, all of a sudden, things from your past will start showing up. They'll start calling you back. They'll start luring you. Remember, when, remember how we kept you full? Because the devil will keep you full. Oh, yeah, he will. He'll keep you just full enough to keep you coming back to it the next time. Keep you just satisfied enough to look at that website again. Keep you satisfied just enough to go do that and to go smoke this and to go drink that. He will keep you just satisfied enough. He will take care of you just enough that you become a repeat customer. Sure does. He wants a repeat. He's not, he's not. He's not satisfied with you coming one time and getting hurt, one time and getting offended, one time and getting a broken heart. He will have you come back to that well every time. Just like the woman at the well, she was a repeat customer. She was onto her sixth man, seventh man. 
because Jesus was the seventh man. She'd been married five times with one, and then Jesus shows up. What's the devil done? He's got her in a cycle of always coming back. Got her in a cycle of leaving you, you know, just satisfied that you know you can come back and get another fix. But empty that you're never really satisfied and you have to keep on coming back. And now the same thing. Now all of a sudden we start thinking about how much food we ate in Egypt. The taskmaster's whips aren't burning on, the, on our backs as much as they were before. And I would take a taskmaster whip if it means that I can have a need in the moment satisfied right now. It's a dangerous way to live. For you have brought us out here into this wilderness. There it is right there. You have brought us out here into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, they might be saying that against Moses, but ultimately they're saying that against God. Now you start allowing your mind to contemplate and allow your mind to think that God is actually bringing destruction on your life. Or at the very least, the destruction you're experiencing is because of him. Oh, it's a dangerous way to live. You won't see promises fulfilled. And see, every time God's glory shows up, every time God makes himself known, every time God performs a miracle, a sign, a wonder, he's given them another opportunity, another invitation to follow after him wholeheartedly and leave behind the destructive ways of the past. So we saw this cycle with Pharaoh. Give you another chance, give you another chance, give you another chance. And now he's doing the same thing with the children of Israel. And he even meets the need. He even meets the need. Never prefer the safety of slavery over the responsibility of freedom. Never prefer the safety of slavery over the responsibility of freedom. I've told y'all before, probably my favorite book. I mean, if, if someone asked me, it's, it, it's made that much of an impact on my life. The Burden of Freedom by Dr. Miles Monroe. The Burden of Freedom addresses this very thing. That many people have a, a misunderstanding of what freedom looks like. And you'll find out that, 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 that there's actually more work to do in the promised land than there was in slavery. In slavery, you were told what to do. In slavery, you knew your schedule. In slavery, you knew, you know, when to wake up, when to go to sleep, how many meals you're going to. Again, the devil will make sure in slavery that at least enough accommodations are met that you keep coming back to it. But in freedom, now you got to fight your own battles. In freedom, you've got to challenge some giants. In freedom, you've got to take down some walls. In freedom, you've got to work to inhabit the land and keep the land that he's now brought you into. The burden of freedom. The Christian life can be summed up in that statement. That many times we become born again, we come out of darkness into light, but we still prefer the lifestyle of slavery 
over the responsibilities of walking in the freedom that he has given to us. You will know the truth and you will be made free. Whom the sun sets free is what? Free indeed. This freedom concept is powerful. So powerful that it's going to demand more of you than slavery did. It will. I can think of many ways in our lives that we accept slavery over freedom. Offense is one of them. Some of y'all have been so hurt, so brokenhearted, so offended in the past that you wouldn't know how to handle a heart that was whole. That now you're required to love the way you're expecting people to love you. It's quiet. But there's many ways where freedom now makes a demand of my life. Slavery didn't. That was an easier life to accommodate. See, once I, once I choose to walk in the way of God, now this word begins to confront and challenge and disrupt even positions and postures of my heart. The Bible tells us that there is nothing that when the light hits it, there's nothing that will remain in the dark. There's nothing that will remain uncovered. So when truth shows up, man, it, it shows up to fix all of it. Truth shows up to address all of it, not just the stuff you want God to address. We've talked about this before. Everybody, you know, we've got a laundry list of the things that we want God to take care of. We want God to heal. We want God to destroy. We want God to work on our behalf. But then we have this other list that we really don't want God dabbling with. We don't really want God touching. We don't really want God moving. We don't really want God dealing with. And you know which list he usually prefers? And typically the list that we make up is just the symptoms. Oh boy, I just went somewhere. We want him to deal with the headache, and he wants to address what's causing the headache. And then when pastors start meddling and pastors start getting deep down, and let me, let me just ask you, if you went to a doctor and you were having a pain in your side, and they do some tests, and they do some procedures, and they find out there's cancer. But in a back room, a group of doctors gets together and says, it's got this pain in the side. We could just address that, you know, just give you some pain meds and just deal with that. I mean, we don't want to hurt their feelings. We don't want to go too deep. We don't want, we, we, we don't want to. Mess them up too bad. You know, let's just, let's just deal with the cert. Let's just deal with the symptoms. And I hope you would fire that doctor. That's actually probably called medical malpractice that we're not informing you and making you aware of everything that's taking place. But yet pastors that do that, you just want pastors to just deal with the symptom stuff, the surface stuff. Just give me a quick fix that'll help me until the pain shows up again next time. And I'm saying, you might need some surgery. 
We might need to have a procedure here. We might need to go through some stuff. We, we might need to dig deeper a little bit. We might need to find what the root cause is. Oh, no, you don't, don't, don't be meddling in my stuff, Pastor. I just came in here to check the box today. I just came in here to, to, to you know, just get my quick pain fixed. Do, you know, help me feel a little bit better and I'll see you in seven days. No, it don't work that way. God's word doesn't work that way. He wants to get all of it. He wants to cut that thing out. Before it spreads and it infects further and it, and it makes things worse than it already is. That's what I said. God was able to get them out of Egypt, but getting Egypt out of them, that was a taller task. That's different. Because now we've got to deal with, with, with mental stuff and we've got to deal with heart stuff. And we've got to deal with, with, with what it means to really be free, what it means to really come out of slavery, what it means to no longer be bound. What does that really mean? It, it sounds all glorious. On the outside, but the dysfunction and the toxicity in this Israelite camp eventually kept them, including Moses himself, from being able to enter into the freedom that God had promised them. But God, multiple times, is moving. On their behalf. You know, what's interesting about this, too, is this, this complaining. You know, a lot of times, if you just really think about it, just in the natural sense, remove the spiritual capacity of what complaining does and how it fosters the heart of doubt and unbelief and, and keeps you in fear and, and, and it just moves you further down an unyielded path. If we just look at the complaining, a lot of times, a lot of times, not every time, but a lot of times, our complaining is reasonable. It's logical. It's the truth of the matter, at least on the surface, at least of the natural motives. Now, of course, our complaints can get, you know, out of line. Anybody ever complained and use a word like everything, everyone, always, all the time, right? Every time I try to get to work. No, it was just today. It wasn't that bad yesterday. It was smooth. No one knows how to drive. No, just that one person that cuts you off. Not, not, not everyone. No one understands but me. Yes, they do. Right? We, we, we could get crazy with our complaints. But, but, but you know, even when these Israelites eventually make it to the promised land, I mean, their fears... Their fears and their doubts could be legitimized. I mean, yeah, they're grasshoppers in their sight. Yeah, the cities are well fortified. Yeah, the, 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 the land is vast. Everything they said was true. It did not discount or discredit God's promise to them. But at the end of the day, a lot of times the reason why we continue in a cycle of complaining and continue in a, a cycle of speaking negativity to things, regardless of what we know God's word says, is because it seems like the right thing to do. And this is the thing about doubt and fear. Doubt and fear will attract things to it that will legitimize its position. I'll say that again. Doubt and fear will attract things to it. And you'll come up with all the reasons why 
your complaining is legitimate. You'll come up with all the reasons why your fear should be postured. You'll come up with all the reasons why your position is correct. And they may be true. They just don't discount what God has already said. The promise he's already given. See, that's the great thing about the promises of God. That God isn't taking a census. God isn't taking a vote. God isn't seeing if we're up for the task. He's already given the promise regardless of what it looks like when, it sh- when we show up, what it, regardless of how many giants there are, regardless of how fortified the cities are, regardless of how vast the land is. He's saying it's still yours. It still belongs to you. I've still given it to you. I've already spoken this. This is the promised Land, past tense, it's already yours. I wasn't consulting your condition before I gave you the promise. I wasn't, this is the promise as long as it meets this criteria. As long as there aren't giants. As long as, God doesn't have those stipulations on it. So regardless of the natural condition you find yourself in, his promise still remains true. And so you have to push back on these opportunities to complain. You have to push back on these opportunities to allow doubt and fear to foster in your life. You have to push back on these opportunities where you can easily say what it looks like. Say what you see. Verse 4 says, going on, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether or not they will walk in my instruction. Did you see that? That I may test them, whether or not they will walk in my instruction. See, even miracles can be mishandled. Even miracles can be mishandled. Do not fall into the trap thinking that because a miracle shows up, you're in right alignment. The reason, and and you know what's interesting about all these things that we read about in these passages? The parting of a Red Sea. Water coming out of a rock. Birds bringing dinner. Manna showing up on the ground without doing anything. It literally requires as, as little participation on the part of the Israelites as possible. But let me tell you something. That's not the life you were called to live, nor is it the life you want to live. You want to live recognizing that he wants to move through you, not in spite of you. Do not fall into the trap thinking, well, miracles are happening. He's still showing up. That's God's mercy and that's God's grace. And the more that God does without your participation, without your faith, without your belief, without your doing something, is not a position you want to be in. Now, that doesn't mean you're doing it. That means he's doing it through you. But he manifested these miracles in spite of their stony hearts. In spite of their rebellious attitudes, in spite of their grumbling mouths, in spite of their complaining words, they never did what he just said that I may test them to see if they'll walk in my instruction. They never aligned themselves with his instruction. 
And the, 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 the crazy thing about it was, do, do I want water out of a rock without me doing anything? Or do I want water that's turned to wine where I was given a command, bring the water in faith to the master and believing that it will turn to wine by the time it gets to him? I'd rather have the latter, not the former. I would rather be a participant saying, God, show yourself mighty in my life. You remember when Jesus got up in the boat and said, peace be still, turned to his disciples and said, what? Ye of little faith. You were a non-participant. I couldn't even use you. And I moved in spite of your unbelief. I moved in spite of your fear. But if you maintain a posture of fear and unbelief and think that God's just going to move and show up in your life, eventually that's going to run out. That is his grace and his mercy because he loves you, because he cares about you, because he wants to show you that he can. He wants to show you that he will. He wants to show you that it's possible. He wants to show you that his glory will come, that he will manifest miracles, that he will do what no one else can do. But he wants you to get in line and say, I got to be a part of that. There's a difference. He said, I will rain bread from heaven. Bread doesn't come from heaven. You make bread. You make bread. Elijah went to the widow woman and said, what do you have? little bit of, jo- of, of oil in a jar. I got a fire. We're going to make these cakes and we're going to die. God said, that's all I need. Just a mustard seed amount of faith. That's all I need. And he didn't rain bread from heaven in that moment, even though he could have. He said, you're going to be a participant. And I'm going to show myself strong through you. But you're going to posture yourself to offer this to the prophet, believing that I can make more. And it never ran dry. She had the ingredients. And enough faith to hand over the the amount of food she was going to make for her and her son. Give it to the prophet in obedience as a step of faith. No step of faith here. In fact, the complete opposite, grumbling and complaining. Doubt and unbelief. Fear, where are we going to get our next meal? A desire to go back to the very thing God just delivered them from. And in his grace and mercy, he rains bread from heaven. That doesn't happen. That I may test them. Look at verse 7. And in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord. In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. Watch this. For he hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? By revealing his glory to the people, in in spite of their doubtful hearts, in spite of their unbelief, in spite of their fear, in spite of their grumbling and complaining, by revealing his glory. You say, why would he do that? Why would he show up in the midst? Why would he show up even though they're grumbling and complaining? And and again, this is old covenant. Don't take this practice home. I'm telling you right now, do not fall into this trap of, well, even if I don't get it right, even if I'm not believing, even if I don't get my words right. No, no, no. Your new covenant, you got the spirit of the Lord living inside of you. You got the Holy Spirit upon you. 
That won't be tolerated. This is Old Testament. This is Old Covenant. They spent over 400 years. God is being gracious and merciful. But when his glory shows up, it was actually another moment to let them turn from their wicked ways, see his power move on their behalf, and say, man, we've got to start believing in this God, that if he brought us out here, he's going to bring us through it. And his glory was an invitation to believe once again. His glory was an invitation to align their values with his values, to posture their heart. But like I told you, when these things show up, it usually reinforces the posture your heart was in to begin with. They didn't have a softened heart. They didn't have a pliable heart. Didn't have a teachable heart. Didn't have a heart that was looking for God to do something mighty on their behalf and through their lives. In, 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 in essence, they were testing God and tempting God, saying, you gonna, what are you going to do this time? What, what, you, what, God, what are you going to do? Where are we going to get food from? Where are we going to get water from? Did you just bring us out here to die? That's the posture of their heart. Later on, these people were called rebellious and stubborn. I don't know about you. I don't want to fall into either of those categories. Worship team, if you'd come. Got one more passage for you. Don't close your Bibles yet. This is the thing about the glory of the Lord. Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. This is the thing about the glory of the Lord. I want you to hear this. Because we're going to see miracles, signs, and wonders. I'll try that again. We're going to see miracles, signs, and wonders. Because he cares about them. That he'll show up in spite. But you and I, the church of the living God, we don't fall into that category. This is the thing about miracles, signs, and wonders. This is the thing about the glory of the Lord showing up in, the, in spite of grumbling and complaining. When I see a miracle, I lose the right to ever face a challenge from the position of what can't be done. I'll say that again. When I see a miracle, when the glory of the Lord enters the camp, when his presence shows up, when he makes himself known, when I see a miracle, I lose the right to ever face another challenge from the position of what can't be done. Some of you have seen miracles that have be just become memories. The Red Sea, just another memory. Water out of the rock, memory bank. Bread, rain from heaven. It's like a photo album that you just look at. Those were the days. And it didn't point you to what's ahead. It didn't alter your heart and alter your affections. You didn't repent. 
I know that might sound weird to align repentance and miracles. Usually repentance is something we do in response to sin. But when you see a miracle, you've got to repent from ever doubting and not believing that he could do it. And say, the next challenge that comes up, I know I can take it on. Because God knew he was taking them into a vast land. With giants, fortified cities. And if you don't believe, I can't get you water. If you don't believe that I can get, I can meet your tangible natural needs. If you start to even allow in your mind, he brought us here to die. He brought me here to cut me off. He brought me here to eliminate me. He's not moving on my behalf. He's actually destroying me. If you actually allow that to deteriorate your belief system, you have no hope when the giants show up. You have no hope when you see the fortified cities. Don't allow the miracles in your life to just merely become memories of what he did once. Let it be something that gives you momentum to believe in the impossible. Because Numbers chapter 14 tells us a sad story. Verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me? Here it is. Despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst. How long? Now God is asking how long. And the Bible says of God that he's long suffering. That means he will suffer long. So if you get God to ask the question, how long? You know this ain't good. When the long-suffering one is saying, how much longer? Like, nobody's more long-suffering than God. And when he's coming to the end of his long-suffering, it's a dangerous place to be. How much longer will they spurn me? How long will these people not believe. Every time the miracle showed up, every time the glory was revealed, every time his presence came into the camp, every time a manifestation took place in their midst, it was an opportunity to alter, repent, align with heaven, get my values in alignment so I can believe that he will do the next thing. When they saw the Red Sea, it should have been, man, he brought us across that thing. If he can part the water, he can bring the water. And then when he feeds my thirst, he can feed my belly. When he feeds my belly, he can fight my battles. When he fights my battles, he can help me take this this territory. It's supposed to be mounting on one another. It's supposed to be having momentum to believe in God to do the most drastic thing that we're ever going to have to believe him to do, to conquer a well-fortified, vast land filled with giants. And yet it did the very opposite. Because A heart that doesn't become repentant becomes hardened, becomes rebellious. 
rebellious to the point that they would go in and spy out a land and come back and say, we can't take it. Can't do it. And that wasn't just, ah, I can't believe God won't do something. It was literally to God, rebellion. He goes on in verse 20. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word, but indeed as I live, and you know he ain't, he ain't dying. As I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord, meaning I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep showing myself on people's behalf. I'm going to keep manifesting my glory. My presence is going to keep coming. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I have performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times. They had ten times of testing him for every time that he brought a plague upon the Egyptians. And have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he had a different spirit, because he had a different spirit, because he had a different spirit. What's that? Posture of the heart. Because he had a different posture. He saw the Red Sea and said, my God is capable. He saw the water out of the rock, he can do it. He saw the bread rain from heaven, he's on my side. He saw him fight my battles even when we were, we were outnumbered. That's the, he's, going, he's going to battle for us. So when he saw giants, when he saw fortified cities, he just saw an opportunity. Come on! He saw an opportunity. He saw an invitation for the glory of God to show up. One more time. The same God that brought me across the Red Sea. The same God that brought the water out of the rock. The same God that fed me with birds. The same God that brought manna on the ground. The same God that fought my battles. He will take out every single one of these giants. We will conquer every city. We will walk in the promises. We will overcome. We are more than conquerors. I'm going to see a victory. The miracles are to be momentum to believe him when you need to believe him at the time you need it most. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast today. We trust you received a word from God. If you enjoyed this teaching, be sure to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. By subscribing, you'll be sure to receive a new message every week as soon as they are made available. And if you'd like to learn more about Anchor Faith Church, you can stop by our website at anchorfaithbaldosta.com. There you'll find our locations and service times, ministries that are available for you and your family. You can even give financially in support of the ministry. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time right here on the Anchor Faith Church podcast.